And um, during that time period, I uh, read a book by Ray Kurzweil called The Age of Spiritual Machines, which was all about the future of tech, um, how quickly technology was accelerating, um, gets into Moore's Law, gets into like the deep history of where computers started from, what computing was even before, you know, electronic computers and vacuum tubes up to the current age, and what to expect to have happen over the next century. Um, just how powerful these machines would be and how networked everything would be. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Jerry Paffendorf and he is the CEO and co-founder of a company called Loveland Technologies. They run a website called landgrid.com and they are trying to map out how the world is subdivided, owned, inhabited and used in the form of land parcels. Just a quick reminder from me, all the show notes, links and resources mentioned in this episode will be available at mapscaping.com. If you would like, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. We just send out you know, all these links to you in that newsletter. And if you're interested in that, go along to mapscaping.com podcast and I'll send them out to you each week. Okay, that's it from me. Let's dive into the conversation with Jerry. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for taking the time to, to do this with me, to record this interview with me. I've been really looking forward to this. I'm looking forward to it because I think you've got a really unusual um, entrance, I, I guess, into this space, into geospatial. So I'd really like to dive into that in just a second. And later on, then, of course, we'll move on and talk about what your company, Loveland Technologies, is, is doing in the geospatial world. So, Again, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Can you tell me a little bit about your your education? Because I think this is a really interesting story and, and a good starting point. Sure. Uh, hey, everybody. Uh, it's great to be here, Daniel. Yeah, I guess I have an interesting background with geospatial um, as much as anybody. I, uh, I grew up in a really small town in New Jersey. I left high school uh, a couple of years early to go to community college. I was kind of like a free range cat uh, of, a, of a kid, I guess, like just in my interests. And um, went to a state school in New Jersey, Montclair State University, for a fine art degree. Uh, focus was in video and mixed media, which really in art school means like kind of do whatever you want. But I had like an early digital video camera and like one of the first alien head shaped IMAX. So I used to record my life and, you know, my friends and stuff and, and make videos out of it. And um, during that time period, I uh, read a book by Ray Kurzweil called The Age of Spiritual Machines, which was all about the future of tech, um, how quickly. Technology was accelerating, um, gets into Moore's Law, gets into like the deep history of where computers started from, what computing was even before, you know, electronic computers and vacuum tubes up to the current age, and what to expect to have happen over the next century, um, just how powerful these machines would be and how networked everything would be. And it got me super interested in thinking about the future and thinking about technology. And that brought me to a graduate program at the University of Houston Clear Lake called um, Studies of the Future. So it's a master's of science degree in studies of the future that I have. And really that program was all about change and thinking about the future and strategic planning and foresight and mistakes people make thinking about the future, best practices, thinking about the future, personal futures, global futures, just everything foresight oriented. And it was in that program that I kind of gravitated towards thinking about what I was calling mirror worlds, which were kind of things like Google Earth that kind of simulate the planet and life and data about the planet. And I also got into video games and virtual worlds and, and the internet and was kind of thinking about the merger of all those things. And so uh, I was never formally trained geospatially, but became very interested about the future of um, mapping things and about modeling things. 
and uh, was also heavily influenced uh, by a book called Mirror Worlds, which was written by a, a Yale computer scientist named David Goenker. And it basically posits um, a near future where pretty much everything on the planet is like fully modeled and able to be investigated and, and, and projected into the future and basically just better understood. So those are some of the ideas that, you know, consistently made me interested in the future of mapping. I think that is such an interesting segue in, into geospatial coming from that background. I've had quite a few guests on the podcast now and they have claimed to be accidental geographers. So they've just sort of fallen into this just because geo was a great way to solve a problem that they had. And, and you feel more like you're also like also an accidental geographer, if I can, if I can describe you like that. But, but, but you're also, you saw that connection early on between the future and geospatial and this modeling of worlds. And I, I just really wanted to highlight and share that story with the listeners because I think it's a really interesting way of getting into it. And of course, now you are the CEO and co-founder of Loveland Technologies. You run a website called LandGrid, and you have a whole bunch of parcel data. But perhaps we should start there. What, what is parcel data? Sure. Uh, so the simplest way to say it, it's basically like the subdivision of property boundaries that cover uh, countries and ultimately the earth. So you know, if you're living in a somewhere where you have a house or you have your property, that's surrounded by a legal, basically like a polygon or a, a rectangle or a square of space that the government has defined and sectioned off to have an owner and an address and taxes. And then there's a whole host of other information that connect to that parcel. When was it first subdivided? Um, does it have a structure on it? Is the structure occupied? Does it have utility hookups, what's the zoning, what are the permissions, what are the taxes owed on it? And so it's basically like the boundaries of space as humans define them, subdivide them, own them, and then allow for occupancy uses. So it's kind of like I spend my days looking at a giant crossword puzzle superimposed on the United States <laughs> and certain other parts of the world. That's, that's the focus of our data. Okay, so it sounds like a pretty amazing data set you have, this parcel data set. And so if we just think about the US for a minute, is this something I can download from OpenStreetMap? Is it available in, in one centralized place? Or do you have to sort of piece it together from, from lots of different data sets? How do we actually get access to the data? Or is it something that you're making, uh, that you're creating yourselves? Yeah, uh, great question. So uh, in the US, there are little over 3,100 counties. And typically, the parcel data is gathered and stored um, with a county assessor. So this is like you know somebody at the county level who's responsible for managing the taxation and the ownership and all this kind of information that's generated and kind of rolled up from individual cities and towns and villages. So the job is really to kind of rotate around you know 3,100 plus county sources who all store it differently. Right, they've all got different column names. They've all got different update schedules, um, and they've all got different. <laughs> they're each differently thrilled or not to make it easily available. I guess is a way to say it, right? So it's it's all public record information. But as you'd imagine, um, with that many parties doing things differently, sometimes it's easily available. Sometimes you've got to pay a little bit of money for it. Sometimes it's easily available if you're technically uh, competent. Um, but they all update things differently. They all have different fields. And so we've taken it on as a mission to assemble from every county all that parcel data, put it into a common schema so all the data columns are the same, figure out to the degree that we can when they update it, where they date it, uh, when they update it, automate it to the greatest degree possible, and then turn it into a seamless fabric where 
you can do analysis or work across many different counties and states because we've cleaned it up and made it easy to digest. So first off, that, that sounds like a, a massive undertaking, and especially considering this is not a one-time job. I'm assuming this needs to be updated, it needs to be maintained on, on a regular basis. So you know, props for that. It sounds like a, a huge job. Can you talk to us a little bit about what the data looks like? So obviously, there's some geometries there. We've got those, those, those boundaries, property boundaries. What kind of attributes are being at- attached to those geometries? And is this something that you're deriving? you know, based on other data that you have, or is it all in the data set itself? Most of what we assemble and share, I would call like very much like the government facts because they come from that local county government or they come from, you know, something smaller within the county, a town or a village or uh, or a city. We do append some additional uh, columns uh, to them. So for example, you know, we've added uh, buildings data. So this, you know, this is something that's not typically stored in the same place. Like, is there a building here? What's the size of the building? We pull in occupancy data from the US Postal Service, so you can actually tell if the building is, is occupied or not. And then we've uh, attached some nationwide um, land use coding to each of the parcels to get a general sense, um, in addition to the, the local zoning, which may or may not be available, of what kind of land is this You know, on the extremes? Is it, is it for farming? You know, is, is it an urban area? Is it, is it commercial? Things of that nature. And over time, we plan to add a lot more fields. In fact, a lot of the people who, who work with us, either you know, partners or customers who use this data, they'll often have other kinds of property or, or location data. Um, but what they don't have is the parcel. So they've never really seen it combined with the owner, the legal boundaries, the zoning, the occupancy, the address, things of that nature. So we make a lot of peanut butter and jelly with people, right? Where we provide this data set for somebody to combine with additional data to get that many more insights from it. Yeah, so, so this is a, a typical theme that, that I hear again and again when I talk to people on the podcast is that they have a data set and they're, they're typically focused on one one vertical, right? So you've chosen parcel data and you've done this amazing job of of collecting this data, cleaning it and, and making it available in this seamless, seamless fabric across the entire US. So, so that's amazing. But typically what, what I see is people blending this data with, with other kinds of data, you know what I mean? So augmenting it, enriching it. What, what kinds of data do you see people really uh, using with, with, with your parcel data? What kinds of data are they typically interested in, in blending this together with? Sure. Uh, you know, it's a great question. And it, it leads to like one of the really fun uh, things about this line of work is that, and uh, the nature of this data set, is that it, it would seem to be so foundational in the sense that this is just this kind of very, this very basic legal sense of like, how is this land subdivided? Who owns it? And then, like, you know, something as simple as like, what's the address or, or the land use lends itself to being very insightful, whether you are an insurance company who maybe has a list of like, you know, who your customers are right now and you've done some other risk modeling in advance. And now you need to combine that to these boundaries and this ownership and these other fields to somebody building like a, you know, a hunting app or an outdoor recreation app who simply needs to know if they have permission to go or walk um, on the land where they are or where they're planning to go. And so, you know, the, the range of like customers and uses and data sets that we see kind of compiled to this are pretty vast. Like, I think real estate, you know, is probably like one field that people would expect because, you know, in a, in a market or a field like real estate, you know, people have, um, you know, they'll get a lot more focused on like sale prices, or like valuation models, 
or like, you know, history of ownership and mortgages or like features of a property like pools or like number of rooms and things like that. We don't always have that kind of data in the basic, um, you know, attached to the basic parcel geometry, but we'll see people add stuff like that all day long. We'll see people use it for geocoding just to help geocode other location data onto a map. We have a lot of people who are doing things with machine learning models and the parcel data. So they'll have, you know, recent examples. We've been, we joined a, a, a consortium of uh, data companies providing free data um, for doing research and response to COVID-19. Um, run by a company called SafeGraph. And, you know, their focus is, um, SafeGraph's focus is on consumer points of interest. So where people go to, to spend money, really they're interested in, in points of interest and places that people go in, in general. But they'll have things like, um, consumer expenditure, um, foot traffic, you know, things of that nature. They'll actually be like foot traffic scales from, um, apps where people get permission to show location, which is something people seem to be you know, incre increasingly aware of and, and uh, in some cases comfortable with, you know, especially around like a, a response to the pandemic. And so we'll see everything from, yeah, your, your sale prices to funky machine learning location models that can include everything from like temperature to the risk of, uh, you know, sea level rise for a particular area uh, to where people are walking and, and, uh, and spending money right now. And it, it ends up being a key piece of that kind of stack to make sense of where are people actually going, what actually exists in the landscape. And I, I feel like critically, something that it ends up being really good for too is like, ultimately, at the end of the day, all these pieces of land are owned and controlled by somebody who's accountable for them or who can be spoken to um, about something that may or may not happen there. You know, so tying things back to the owner tends to open up a whole range of, uh, make a whole new range of things possible from, you know, asking permission if you could do a garden on this vacant lot to seeing if somebody's interested in, in buying their house to sending them a letter to make them aware of something. So. It's, um, I kind of think about it like a pinwheel sometimes that we're dealing with, right? There's this whole range of how different data ties back to this ice cube tray of parcel shapes that covers the earth. I think that that was a really, really important point that the last point you made there about tying it back to a person. Oftentimes when we look at data sets like this, it's too easy to think of it as just data, but there's actually people at the end of it. There's somebody who owns that land, someone who has a vested interest in what may or may not happen there in the future. And I, I think that's really important. I'd like to jump back a little bit here in the conversation because you talked about a couple of really interesting use, use cases. I would like to start off with georeferencing. And I, I believe from a previous conversation, you talked about that Mapbox was using your data in the background, increase the accuracy of their georeferencing. Can you, can you talk us through what that looks like and, and how that works? Yeah, not to speak on behalf of Mapbox. They're, they're a customer of ours and one that we're super excited about because I think like a lot of people in the geospatial space, I mean, they've made such a contribution over the last time flies, right? However long it's been since they've been founded. So we're also Mapbox like users for how we serve up some of our data and they're customers of ours. And where they saw value in the parcel data is they do a lot of geocoding for people, right? People come to them with addresses or lat long points, and you're trying to place this stuff accurately on a map. And so the parcel boundaries, which do come with addresses as well, and have centroids you know, in the, in the middle of that polygon can be helpful for positioning other kinds of data in the right place, right? Which I think is, it's a, um, you know, something like that is a use case where you may not be as concerned about zoning and owners and taxes and structures and near built of structures, but the parcels become, because they have an address and they have this, this physically bounded box, you can attach other data to the surface of the earth 
more accurately and more rapidly. So that's that's one use case there, which is cool. And there's, we have a number of other people that use that the parcel data for the same purpose. They just happen to use it as a service that other people also use. And they do many other things to their geocoding too, but we're happy that it's a, it's a piece of that stack. Yeah, and this is one of the things I find fascinating about companies like yours is where all the data ends up because you know you, you have your you have your website landgrid.com where people can go there and it's more sort of user interactive and then you have your APIs where so your data can be ingested by a whole bunch of other companies and, and it's really it creates a bit of a spider web out there in the world and I think it's it's really fascinating actually to see where it ends up and what the different use cases are. One thing that really stuck out to me before when you were talking about the kinds of data that people were were using to augment the, this parcel data to enrich it uh, was that almost all of the data sets that you mentioned that they at least in my mind they were they were vector data sets uh, yeah do, do you see this being used with, with uh, raster data sets with, with imagery at all or is there a future there yeah that's a great question I you know when I think about kind of the present and the future of this kind of data and I think probably just like property data in general, our current usage or our current like mission, like what we've done, was very focused on collecting the government facts. Like mentally, I keep using that term because they're you don't make them up. You can clean them and organize them, right? But they're they're like facts. Like you know, we can't look at a house and be like, I think a woman named Jennifer owns that, right? <laughs> you need to get from the from the actual recorded deed. Like that's that's the fact. And the lot lines are facts, and the year the structure was built was a fact, and the accessible, you know, assessed value is a fact. All those things are kind of facts. But when you think about the amount of information that can be appended to that polygon, right, to the parcel, to get to that point, you really need to be overlaying it on top of different kinds of imagery or data that may not be, you know, structured similarly. Like I feel like whenever you get, you know, passionate about something, and this this may be doubly true in the geospatial space. I don't really know, but you. You kind of like look at what you're doing and you think about the future and you think about where it can go and you and you kind of end up like thinking about things like a space alien sometimes, right? Where you're like, you're kind of like developing your own language of how this stuff can be, be used that may or may not make sense to anybody else. And I, I am really big on uh, what the short-term possibilities are for essentially taking that, the frame of the polygon, the frame of the parcel, using that to essentially like crop super high resolution imagery. So now you've got like a you know a picture frame drawn around the surface of the earth with you know its grass and its trees and its buildings and its you know cars and activities and things of that nature and being able to you know describe to the the system like what's in that parcel how would you describe it like what's the what would the human language you know description of what you're seeing in that frame be and then uh, you know from from what we've seen and what we've been able to gather you know there are essentially like 150 million parcels that make up the United States of America. And so, you know, looking at it, it's almost like, you know, America's made of 150 million pictures, you know, with frames. And the filling in that, the frame of the parcel requires having this different kind of data, you know, in this case, like high resolution aerial imagery, but you can use the that polygon of the parcel to punch out the picture, teach the software, you know, to the best that you can, what's actually inside of that frame, do that a few thousand times, and then run that over much larger numbers of parcels. And so we're just beginning to scratch the surface of this. Um, we see some interesting work being done um, from people who do like kind of change detection on parcels, right? You'll have time-stamped aerial imagery from different dates and then basically like throwing a flag like, whoa, there's a new building here, right? Or a building went away, you know, there's new trees or 
um, whatever the case may be. And so, yeah, mixing this kind of data with you know imagery and other kinds of data that are differently structured is definitely something that we are. I would say we're currently in the stage of like creating the, the right partnerships for that and just doing internal testing. But you know, thinking about where this goes, it's like okay, we've got the government facts. It's great. Then there's this like middle bridge of like what's the other privately assembled data that exists that can be added to those government facts. And then there's this whole world of you know what can computer vision and some training from humans help derive. We'll see how much can be done in the short term with that. But it starts to get exciting and also like really trippy because it's it just seems possible that there might be derivable insights about the planet that might come in the shorter than the longer term. Yeah, I, I can. When you talk about it like that, I can see a ton of possibilities there. Um, I wonder if people aren't working on this somewhere, you know, in the in the basement of some research lab, because it seems like a really good idea to divide the country up in, in that way. You've already got these discrete boundaries, and you know a lot of information about these boundaries. So it, it seems like a really good start, a really good approach. So it'd be interesting to see what comes out of that. I, I think I think I think so. As opposed to if you just ran that kind of analysis without any kind of subdivision of space, you'd be able to like point out lots of different things, but it doesn't necessarily allow you to assemble them into like a legible land use that might help you understand houses and properties and yards, you know, that kind of stuff. So no, I totally agree. If anybody's listening who's into that stuff, we are, <laughs> we're, we're definitely interested and they've got to be working on it in a lab somewhere. And that's maybe the missing piece in some cases is that parcel data could be very helpful to it. Well, I hope someone contacts you. And if they do, I would love to hear about it. So another interesting use case you mentioned, again, referring back to a previous conversation, was um, climate change. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? How, why is parcel data important for, for climate change models? Sure. I would say more so on the, um, the impacts of climate change or sea level rise, right? So, you know, this is, I think this is, it's an interesting example because it just speaks to how widely applicable we found this kind of data to be. So, you know, one of our customers is a, a group called First Street Foundation. Um, they do excellent, just like cutting edge work, modeling climate change, sea level rise, um, effects on coastal communities, you know, th things of that nature. And so, you know, like, let's say that some geospatial folks and data scientists are kind of looking at like, okay, they're doing this totally different branch of the work, right? They're like, Okay, like what's the temperature in the in the uh, in Earth's atmosphere here? How is that correlating to ice melting? How's that correlating to the rise in water? Where do we think the water is going to go over the topography of the coastal region? How far above or below sea level or different places? And so once you've got that figured figured out, it's like okay, so like well, what does that actually mean for for people and for property and for municipal costs if there were damage? Um, and all those things that relate back to the land grid. And that's when you want to start to overlay those things on, okay, if the water goes in this far, how many properties are you covering? What are those properties? You know, how many are houses? How many are businesses? You know, how many are institutional kinds of structures? What's the value of those structures? What's the cost to repair those structures? What might go into helping people to move if that were necessary? Um, what might go into incentivizing or working with people to give options to move to higher ground if that was deemed necessary by a local government. And so it's kind of bringing to that, you know, scientific kind of research about this may be likely to happen, or if this happened, this is how far in it would go, the dimension of like, here's what we would need to respond to, here's how many people would be affected. And beyond just like, you know, using census numbers for that, again, getting down to like the specific 
these are the owners, this is the assessed value, you know, this is what this is what we're looking at. So um, I think that's a cool example because it's but yeah, so it becomes both very relevant to climate change. It doesn't if you were just looking at the climate itself, it's it's not the data set that you would grab first. But when you get to the practical effects of like what's the impact on the planet or a place, you're gonna want it at some point, right? Or your partner's gonna want it at some point. Yeah, and of course, I mean, at some stage, you need to get down to okay, who is the owner here? Who who has the a vested interest in in what's happening here? And and what does the the current land use look like? And what might it look like in the future? So, so this was a very deliberate line of questioning for me because I know that you have some really really interesting thoughts around this. So so my next question is: given that we are likely to experience quite dramatic change in the future for whatever reason in terms of the way we use land and what land can be used for. Do you feel like uh, parcel data, like this grid system, this uh, human subdivision of space, is it holding us back? I do love this. Um, you know, I always, whenever I have a chance, I always, you know, I just have to flag these, these two books that same author, a uh, guy named Andrew Linklater, wrote a book called Owning the Earth, which is a, a deep historical overview of the different land ownership regimes that different people and nations and civilizations have used, which is the broad array from like God owns everything to like the king, queen, or the pharaoh own everything to stuff is owned in, in common to hybrid systems down to like, you know, the more extreme version of private property that the um, the United States has really kind of you know pioneered over time. And his second book uh, is specifically about how this land grid came together in the US. It's called Measuring America, focuses on what's called the U.S. Public Land Survey. And it was basically a scheme. You know, I don't necessarily say that in a negative way, but I definitely have to call it a scheme. It was a scheme to overlay essentially like all of the current United States outside of the first 13 colonies and, and the South with a square mile uh, subdivision of space, so a square mile grid. And this was Thomas Jefferson who came up with this uh, idea and it basically required uh, groups of, of surveyors starting around 1790 to drag 66 foot long metal chains through the woods and over prairies and mountains and across rivers, keep very careful track of every square mile section, make notes on it, you know, give it an identifier. And essentially the idea was that every six by six square mile sections could be uh, set apart as its own township. And there was a square mile set aside for you know, public use of lands and education. And then these uh, townships would snap together into counties, and eventually they would snap together into states. And the vision of that time, you know, going back to the, you know, the, the late 1700s, the thinking was, there's this massive continent here, all the space, and it's got to be inhabited um, you know, with the, the residents of this new country. And um, so we need to create a coherent framework for it because... You know, it was sort of anomalous at the time in that it did not, you know, develop organically, really, right? They needed to lay out this, this grid or this tray. And so descriptions of these square mile parcels and sections got brought to, you know, cities like Washington, D.C. and Philly and New York and auctioned off to the highest bidder and then further subdivided over time. And they did become counties and states and once they reached a certain population. And it's, it's really the boundaries in, in much of the U.S. It's the boundaries of that square mile uh, survey. Um, that still subdivide our, you know, give the boundaries to our city streets. It's not every single parcel in the U.S. There were parts of California and parts of Texas and the South that did it differently, but pretty much from the Ohio-Pennsylvania border, you know, west and to the top of the U.S., you'll, you'll find the, uh, the imprint of this surveyor's chain. 
And, and since that time, we've just sort of taken it for granted that this land grid is there. And it's, you know, more or less uh, fixed and permanent. And you don't hear a lot of talk from people about changing it or flexing it, right? Which gets to this interesting thing about the future, especially if you let your th yourself think deeply about where it came from and who was even here originally, right? I, and I don't think Measure America did a good job talking about Native Americans and indigenous peoples. They don't come up very much in the book. I think it's otherwise a great work, or at least as I recall, I don't think there's too much mentioned. But if you think about ways of life and what was here previously, the arbitrary nature of how the grid was laid out on top of it, some of the changes in the um, living patterns and economy that we certainly have in the U.S., but not only in the U.S., right? Places are that were once industrialized, like our you know, home base in Detroit, which really don't produce and manufacture, you know, certainly don't make cars or things or, or employ as many people in the way they once did, all kind of beg for like as life changes, can this grid change and adapt? And it's, it, we do not do a lot of work in that area currently, but I think the team is kind of like thoughtful enough about these things that we have this great data and we know that it can help people in straightforward ways make better decisions and, and improve the efficiency of the business, however they want to use it. But we also do think like once you can see the land grid, maybe that's the first step in thinking about how it could actually be modified or, or used differently. So but that's a really big question. It gets, and it's part of why this is fun. It gets into politics and it gets into group decision-making and it gets into nature and conservation and all these kinds of things. Um, firstly, let me say thank you for the for your insights there, and I really appreciate like knowing a little bit more about the history of the land grid. Grid, I, I think, yeah, when we talk about this sort of relatively arbitrary subdivision of land, and then when we fast forward to to today and think about you know the effect that that has, like now we're now we're stuck with this. Well, not stuck with it. We can change it, but it's it's not an easy thing to change. It has a lot of sort of structural inertia now. It's going to be difficult to move, but we're in the same time. But we're living in a in a very changeable time. Like we expect to experience a significant greater amount of change in our lifetimes than, than what's happened to previous generations. And, and I think this is a really, really interesting situation that we've got ourselves in. So it'll be interesting to see how this sort of moves and evolves in the future. Speaking of the future, I, I guess my question here is, like, what do you think this is going to look like in the future? Are you expecting to be able to collect more data associated with the land grid? Are you expecting to derive more data? Uh, is this an evolving product or is it going to be a, a relatively static uh, data set? I love the question because I wrestle with it. I think the way that we got into this line of work, not to talk about Detroit too much, but we are headquartered in Detroit, Michigan, and I kind of feel like it was our silent fourth co-founder in a lot of ways, because we started mapping parcels just because there were so many property issues in the city, right? We had a you know, peak population that was three times the current population, a lot of vacant buildings, a lot of vacant land to serve people better, and a lot of people losing their properties over not being able to pay over-assessed taxes, and a lot of systemic racism, frankly, around that too. It's 80% African-American city, and it was just, you know, with the diminished tax base and, and neighbors that were being less than helpful. One place that we saw where we could be helpful is to really illuminate the land grid, show what was owned, show what was at, at, at risk, you know, all these kinds of things of this nature. And so what got us into building a good business, which I'm so thankful we've been able to, to do over time to kind of figure these things out, to kind of go from like, this should exist to like, okay, here's how we fund it and, and grow and uh, provide reliable service, is this sort of like mission style thinking, right? So when I think about the future, and what this kind of project wants to be, like what does land grid want to be um, ultimately? You know, at the furthest edges I can see, I do think that somebody should be creating the global 
repository for all subdivisions of space that humans have superimposed on the the ball that we we live in floating in space, right? So whether that's you know from countries down to at least what we call them in, in the states, you know, country, states, counties, uh, cities, neighborhoods, you know, other boundaries, census tracts, political boundaries, down to the individual property and the individual buildings, seems like it's something that should be put together globally uh, because it's so important, right? You know, population has expanded hugely. We've got what are we up to now? Eight billion, you know, some people and growing on the planet. And how the earth is owned and used and occupied is so fundamentally important for managing resources and for quality of, of life that it seems like you could spend a lifetime or maybe multiple lifetimes just kind of expanding the kind of data set we put together so far and just extract, you know, moving that out to other places, figuring out what the issues are that people care about and starting to address them to make, make life better. So I, you know, when I look at the future, I think globally, I think about issues of access. I think about issues. I also think about political issues because you know, it's, it's one thing to, to think about, oh, we'll just map all the property ownership everywhere. But then you butt up against a country that may have very different political system, very different culture, very different views, very different power dynamics. And so, like, what is the best way for kind of everybody to plug into a growing data set like that, that, you know, maybe takes on some features of Wikipedia or OpenStreetMaps or something more, you know, public nature, right? Where it's, it's something that, that everybody just has access to, to, to understand. And then I try to blend that with like, okay, so like, yeah, what is what is becoming increasingly possible from everybody having a smartphone in their pocket and therefore being, you know, like it or not, in many cases, like you're broadcasting yourself and you're trackable and you're present, you know, and so your location is present, your activity is present on this grid. And then people watching the world from the air and from space, it doesn't feel like we're very far from having like, and again, I say like it or not, because I don't think people have their minds around this, like a fully quantified observable mirror world situation of a, of a planet, that there's going to be governmental decisions and, and public input into like how that actually works and, and what's comfortable. But I think a part of that is going to be this land grid piece. And so I know that sound, maybe that sounds kind of far out and highfalutin, but like when I think about our future, I think about, yeah, getting these government facts right, making the data more accessible to people than it's ever been before, you know, more affordable, easier to plug into. Um, all those values are very strong with our team, um, as is like trying to push things to the degree that you can, right? And what you feel is like a right or equitable situation, right? Try to prioritize people who are more vulnerable in their needs over somebody who's like, oh, I got like 10 million bucks and I'm trying to, you know, buy a piece of land. We do help those people with our services right now too. But we also think about situations in Detroit where it's like, okay, who's really hurt by this land grid and how do we fix it? And so, you know, looking at that future, the machine learning growth of the data, the relationships required to work with local government. How do you partner around the planet? How do you partner with people? And, and is it is it actually something that people in the world want, like a repository of all these subdivisions of space down to the individual ownership of land? I, I have a hunch that, that it is, that it's like one of those things that is necessarily going to be built. And it will either be built with a public spirit to it, or it'll be like quietly assembled by private actors are not very accessible. And so, you know, when I squint at it, I, I do, I wonder, and I think about, and I try to make moves that, that help us fit into that picture, which is a very different kind of game playing out than what we typically do in the office day to day, right? Which is try to get good data and, and deliver it to a host of customers or people who are curious about properties. But when I look at the future, I think about stuff like that, for sure.
I've had a couple of conversations with you now, Jerry, and each time, you know, um, I love it. it. It's so refreshing to meet someone who's just so clearly into what they're doing. It's absolutely brilliant. I want to take a few seconds here just to highlight a couple of points in, in what you said that I find really interesting. So, so firstly, I think what you're getting at there is the idea of data as a global good, right? So collecting this data set and giving everyone access to it. And yeah, I, I really see what you mean there. I think I'm on board with this because uh, I, I've heard people talk about this idea before that they say, um, what gets measured gets improved. And I think in this case, if it's visible, then we could start to see it for what it is and the way it's holding us back and the way it's making things better or worse. Either way, if it was visible on a global scale, I think this would would make it much easier to start thinking about it differently and sort of look at it objectively. So I, I'm, I'm totally with you on that one. I want to sort of round off the conversation here a little bit. I really want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your insights. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. So thank you for that. Really, really appreciate it. And just before I let you go, where, where can the listeners go to either reach out to you personally or ask questions? Is there somewhere they can go to, to learn more about LandGrid? Yeah, I appreciate that. So um, yeah, so anybody can find me online, Jerry Papendorf. I'm on the Twitter and the Facebook and the Instagram and all that stuff. You can find our site and all of our services at landgrid.com. You know, what you'll find when you go there, I hope makes you happy because we've really tried to make this data set accessible to a range of people from individuals to businesses to governments in a variety of ways that hopefully just fit. So like, we do have a free parcel viewer. You do not need to pay us to look at the data that we have. Uh, we have GIS tools if you want to make maps, you know, on our website um, that you can subscribe to that are very affordable. We have a land grid mobile app so you can look up parcels, you know, parcels in your pocket, uh, wherever you need them. And if you need to pull data out of the system, you know, we have a data store. You can grab counties. We have a, an API. We have a tile server and we do bulk downloads. And so we've really been conscious about putting everything there in a way where if you're just a curious resident of a place or you're a map maker yourself, or you're, you know, a business or an organization that needs lots and lots of stuff. We, we, we really try to make that simple and we never want to say no to anybody. And I think we've somehow done a fairly good job of having those different tiers that apply to different cases. Thanks very much for, for mentioning those resources for the listeners. That's it for me, Jerry. Um, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And that's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. Remember that all the links and resources mentioned in each episode will be available at mapscaping.com. If you would like, I'll send them to you an email each week. Just go along to mapscaping.com slash podcast and sign up for that if it's something you're interested in. Um, yeah, and if you haven't already, consider subscribing. This is a weekly podcast, so every week a new episode comes out. If you subscribe, you'll be sure not to miss that. Okay, that's it for me. We'll talk again next week. Bye.